This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by the University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutionary Nonviolence, Organizing for Freedom. Revolutionary Nonviolence is a crucial resource on the long history of nonviolent philosophy through the teachings of Reverend James M. Lawson, Jr., one of the great practitioners of revolution through deliberate and sustained nonviolence. Reverend Lawson's work as a theologian, pastor, and activist has inspired hope for more than 60 years. In Revolutionary Nonviolence, Michael K. Honey and Kent Wong reflect on Reverend Lawson's talks and dialogues, from his speeches at the Nashville Sit-In Movement in 1960 to his lectures in the current UCLA curriculum. This volume demonstrates how we can overcome violence and oppression through organized direct action, presenting a powerful roadmap for a new generation of activists. Revolutionary Nonviolence, Organizing for Freedom out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. You are likely sick and tired of industrial capitalism. It turns out that industrial capitalism is also quite literally making us and the planet quite sick. Our bodies are not the isolated abstractions imagined by liberal individualism. They exist within ecological and social webs as understood by indigenous cosmologies materially rooted in relationships to the land and to non-human nature. There's no individualized medical treatment that can confront the toxic food system fueled by mass monoculture. The ingestion of microplastics that might even alter our gut biomes— or the life-shortening stresses caused by payday loans and racist policing. Today, I'm interviewing Raj Patel and Rupa Maria on their book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine in the Anatomy of Injustice. We are staying busy at the dig. I'm currently toggling between reading three excellent books that I'll be doing interviews on in a bit. Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality by Lily Geismer. The World That Latin America Created, the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in the Development Era by Margarita Fajardo, and something really incredible that I just started, The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World by Ho Feng Hung. I'm also finishing up my prep to interview Veronica Gago on Argentine feminism and neoliberalism from below, and then moving on to start developing my questions for my interview with Kim Phillips-Fine on Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal. If you depend on The Dig for these in-depth interviews on politics, economics, and history all over the world, please do take a quick moment to contribute at patreon.com slash The Dig. The Dig is overwhelmingly a listener-supported podcast. The only reason we don't have to paywall half our episodes to raise funds to do the podcast is because those of you listeners, people like you listening right now, who can't afford to contribute, do so. We also have books, coffee mugs, tote bags to send you in the mail. And a contribution of any amount at all will get you our excellent weekly newsletter by email, even a dollar a month. That's patreon.com slash the dig, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the dig. Okay, here's Raj Patel and Rupa Maria. Dr. Rupa Maria is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she practices and teaches internal medicine. 
She is a co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, a collective of health workers committed to addressing disease through structural change. She has toured 29 countries with her band, Rupa and the April Fishes. Raj Patel is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin's Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs and the author of Stuffed and Starved, The Value of Nothing, and the co-author with Jason Moore of A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things. He is the co-director of The Ants and the Grasshopper, a documentary on climate change, race, patriarchy, and the global food system, and serves on the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. Raj Patel and Rupa Maria, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us, then. Thank you. Your book presents a big sweep of history in the present, and inflammation is what ties it all together. So let's start with defining the term. You write, quote, Inflammation accompanies almost every disease in the modern world. Heart disease, cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, Alzheimer's, depression, obesity, diabetes, and more. The difference between a mild course and a fatal case of COVID-19 is the presence or absence of systemic inflammation. What, biologically speaking, is inflammation? And then why did you choose it as the lens through which to explore how capitalism, colonialism, and other systems of domination and oppression affect our human health? What makes inflammation the root of so much illness? I would say that the, that the human body is doing what the body has evolved to do. Um, so the immune system, which is the site of the inflammatory response, that's what's, you know, the mediators of the white cells and the molecules that are generated in the inflammatory response, are evolved to harmonize human beings to their surroundings, to their environments, to their histories. And when everything around us has been constructed in a way that creates damage, that immune response becomes inflammation. So inflammation is the body's response to damage or the threat of damage. The most simple example would be the inflammatory response you see with a paper cut. So you get a paper cut and the body mobilizes all sorts of resources from the innate immune system to stop the bleeding and to heal the wound. And when the wound is healed, the inflammatory response turns off. Um, but what we see in diseases of chronic inflammation is that it never turns off. The response never turns off. And what we're left with is a smoldering fire in the body. We weren't out looking for, you know, as, as these thoughts evolved, we weren't looking for, you know, let's talk about the immune system. Um, but it ended up becoming very profound in how we looked at the hist our history of understanding what the immune system is, our history of learning how medicine and Western science have told the story of immunity and the immune system, and how th those narratives are inextricably linked to histories of domination and colonialism that brought capitalism and that architecture of domination all over the world. And so it is, you know, for myself as a doctor who's been working in the front lines and on the bleeding edge of society in the hospital for the last 20 years, and as a touring musician who would go around the world with my band and um, purposefully go to spots where I could see the interaction between society and wellness and society and disease, 
it became very clear that there were these patterns of diseases that we were seeing more prominently in um, socially oppressed groups of people. And they were often people on the losing side of the colonial capitalist architecture. And so noticing that, oh, wow, these people always seem to have autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, cancer rates through the roof, depression, suicide, um, alcohol use disorders, substance use disorders, um, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease. Why was this happening in this way? And, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, I started to call it a colonized syndrome. Maybe this is just a syndrome of diseases. Then we heard about, you know, the metabolic syndrome or syndrome X, you know, in India um, are people who have been deeply um, colonized and removed from traditional ways of knowing and practices. And then as time went on and the science evolved, it became clear that all of these diseases had a common aspect of this immune response. And so um, that's where Raj and I started to look at, well, what is the story of immunity telling us now? And maybe Raj can tell us the story of immunity back in the day, and we can think about where where it's led us to. I, I mean, I, I come at this from thinking about food a lot. Uh, you know, my, my background is uh, working with peasant movements and land workers in food systems around the world. The sorts of things that Rupa was seeing in the hospital, I was also seeing through the, the struggles that I was involved in, where communities were either inventing or rediscovering ways of healing themselves from the attacks of the modern food system. Now, sometimes those attacks are just directly brutal uh, repression by the police uh, or land evictions uh, and massacres. Sometimes it's through the application of the the modern food system itself and and its foods but either way uh, you've got through the food system ways in which uh communities in resistance have been assaulted so the the sort of discovery of the metaphor of inflammation was something that emerged really in dialogue with rupa where we discovered that the worlds of food and the worlds of medicine were were pretty tightly bound together. And as we started to sort of dig into this, the idea of capitalism, particularly colonial capitalism, as a central feature of, of that binding became clearer and clearer. And, and I think what, you know, one of the big discoveries for us was just the etymology of immunity. I mean, you know, through COVID, we've all become experts in the immune system uh, by looking at Wikipedia. But to understand really what's going on in the sort of subtle thinking around uh, immunity, you need to recognize, first of all, that the, the word immune comes from uh, to practices of colonialism that are that date back to the Roman Empire. So pre-capitalist colonization has something to do with the idea of immunity. And it works like this. When the Romans were busy colonizing the Mediterranean, uh, they needed uh, a way of denoting conquered cities that were free, but not quite as good as Rome. And one of the ways that they discriminated was to observe that if you were a Roman citizen, uh, you were subject to certain kinds of duties. Uh, the word, the, the Latin word for duty, munera. If, if you didn't have to do those duties, uh, but you lived in a free city, then you were uh, one of, uh, you were living in cities that were uh, civitates liberae et immunes. Uh, and so to be immune is to be not subject to the same duties and therefore not quite as good as those who were doing the conquering. 
Now, that, that language of immunity, of self and other, uh, is something that conjures up these sort of battle lines of supremacy that Rupert and I were exploring through this idea of inflammation. And so, you know, it brings us back to the idea of what, what really is the immune system? Why do we talk about this body and its functioning as, you know, through metaphors of colonialism and war? Uh, and why is it that we, you know, we see what, what we now know as, as, an, as inflammation as a response to certain kinds of some of the worst predations of colonial capitalism? Yeah, your book is about taking the body out of the abstracted realm of of liberal individualism and putting it where it actually lives in what is called the exposome. You write, quote, the sum of lifetime exposures to non-genetic drivers of health and illness from conception to death is called the exposome. The exposome encompasses chemical, social, psychological, ecological, historical, political, and biological elements that determine whether aging cells will become drivers of chronic systemic inflammation. The exposome of modern industrial societies is rife with triggers for inflammation-related diseases. How does paying attention to the exposome transform our understanding of the individual body, and to what extent does modern medicine or has modern medicine taken the exposome into account? The exposome is not an idea that most doctors that I work with even know about or think about. It it comes out of the language of environmental health. So those health workers, public health workers who are interested in how our environment is making us healthy or unhealthy. And usually those folks are also not extending that exposome into dynamics of history and power. They're talking about, okay, how many trees are in your neighborhood? And these are important considerations especially with climate climate crises. Um, how much you know toxic exposure do you have from air pollution, um, which is a massive driver of systemic inflammation? But the exposome, what was so interesting about as we were studying chronic inflammatory diseases was that, you know, when we talk about nature versus nurture, genetics versus environment, which one is it? And, you know, over the last, I'd say, 22, 30, 40 years in medicine, there's been an obsession with, you know, genetic uh, determinants of disease and how we can tailoring increasingly precise individual based medicines for people. I think that those things are important to understand. It is important that we widen and deepen our understanding of um, the genome and of how individuals are healthy or unwell. But when we ignore the other side, the environment, um, we're ignoring this huge um, part of um, what's driving the diseases we're seeing. And when they did twin studies um, looking at two identical twins raised in different environments, they found that an overwhelming um, majority of diseases of chronic inflammation are due to the environment. They're not due to genes the way that, you know, the obsession in medicine has been. And so if we understand that, we have to start looking very carefully as what what is in that exposome. And as I was saying, the immune system harmonizes to the world around us, um, including our ancestries, our stories, our histories, our lineages. And so if the exposome around us is toxic, if it includes debt and um, land theft and racist police violence, or here in Oakland right now, school closures of predominantly black schools, um, if it includes, um, you know, having to work the night shift or having to be exposed to air pollution on a daily basis, these elements um, of a toxic exposome, the immune system harmonizes in a way that creates inflammation and creates inflammatory disease. 
What we've also seen is in societies where you don't have a colonial capitalist mentality or cosmology dictating relationships between humans and between humans and the web of life around them. Um, so indigenous communities, horticultural societies that live with a very intact um, culture that often predates colonial capitalism, that those societies are not, they don't have the same rates of chronic inflammatory disease. Um, so what is it? What is the, you know, what is it about those cosmologies and ways of living and being that are healthier, that, that create the possibility for health? And that, that was a real fascinating um, aspect of this work for me as a physician, because this is not in our training at all. We are not taught to think of whole systems or of um, how to hold a concept and understanding of why people are getting sick in the ways that they are. That's really fascinating because it's this longstanding problem in modern medicine. But as you point out, really in the last decades, this zooming in with a monomaniacal focus on genetics emphasized so much more than zooming out, which seems really telling at a time of ecological crisis when the more we zoom out, the bleaker things look. The history of medicine is one of always stories of geography and history. Uh, you know, if, if one is diagnosing because one is being exposed to certain kinds of humors, then one's telling a story about you've been in this place and there are these things and you were there at this particular time. And so this combination of history and geography is really what is causing your particular disease. And, you know, we referred in the, in the book to some of, sort of Foucault's insights into the evolution of medicine uh, under Broussais, uh, who talks about how one of the things that Foucault uh, observes is that there is this 19th century uh, shift in the way that diagnosis happens. You know, diagnosis, the idea of being able to tell stories apart, is that uh, all of a sudden, the site, the locus of disease becomes the the organ. And you, you look to see what has happened to the organ. You tell stories using histories and geographies of the body. And, you know, it's you know, what, you know, what has happened to this organ in this uh, over a series of, uh, of of periods of time. And you're right, Dan. I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of relentless push of medicine has always been uh, at smaller scales and even tighter sort of loci of, of, uh, of disease. And what we're trying to do here is bust that all backwards uh, and suggest that history and geography are always part of the arts of healing. Uh, but in order to get it right, we need to do the history of excavating why it is that uh, you know, black communities in the United States live in areas that are up to four degrees, sorry, seven degrees Celsius hotter than white areas. Uh, why, why it is that uh, certain populations are, you know, overwhelmingly exposed to particulate matter pollution. Uh, and those histories are about the exposome, but it's also about the geography and the history under capitalism uh, and under colonialism of why it is that these exposomes are different in the ways that they are. Well, in terms of that history, you write, quote, Modern biology and the medicine that rests upon it has been part of an epic misrecognition of self and other. What what led to this ruptured understanding of who we are and how we relate to and exist within our environment? What what about the history of liberalism, capitalism, colonialism led us to so profoundly misunderstand our body's place in the world? Yes, I think that that's the the crux of the question, and um, it it serves a colonial capitalist agenda to to sever our relationships 
with one another and our our place in the web of life. So it's much easier to riddle a mountain with holes to mine it for silver when you don't understand that that mountain has personhood and has a um, important place in the understanding of who we are. Most California native groups, actually most native groups I know, indigenous people have sacred mountains, have sacred waterways, and those um, entities have personhood. Um, You would never think to defile them because they are a part of the architecture of health and wellness of the entire system, not just one individual person. And so the errors of understanding of who we are and what our place is in the web of life served the agendas of stealing people's land, you know, enslaving people for labor and extracting resources um, from the from the mountains and the water and everything. Um, and so that mentality of extraction domination, it really necessitates that you don't see the humanity of other people or the personhood of other beings. And that's still, you know, something that we live with today. Um, I was just touring a, a house in the San Gregorio Valley, in the watershed of San Gregorio, which is just south of San Francisco. And it was a house, a log cabin that was built, you know, 150 years ago. And I was in this house with two California native folks, um, one who's Ramatushloni, one who's Wintu, And walking through the house, and seeing the racist paraphernalia that maybe like for an average person, they wouldn't be triggered by what they saw on the walls or saw all the tchotchkes that were laying around the house uh, would just be considered quaint and part of like a rural um you know, imagery of pastoral. I think the, the person who was showing us the house said, isn't this just a picture out of Ralph Lauren, like a catalog, right? And to us, it was a, you know, a, a museum of the genocide of uh, and the destruction of California, which is now on fire year round. Um, and so that understanding that it was through killing the beaver and killing the salmon and killing the grizzly and killing the people and removing the people who knew how to ecologically tend the land here over thousands, tens of thousands of years, that we are in this cycle now of ecological destruction and climate crises. Um, And so those are the, you know, the lenses and stories that we have to start diving into, because the, the narratives that we've been given in medicine are not good enough. The diagnoses that we're working with do not actually get us to a place of understanding why women who are operated on by male surgeons, you know, have an increased risk of mortality, 33% compared or 32% compared to women who are operated on by female surgeons. What is that about? If that was a drug that had that kind of mortality difference, that drug would be pulled from the market but I don't see any calls (laughs) to ask male surgeons to stop operating on women. When women surgeons operate on men and women, there's no difference in mortality outcomes for those patients. So how, again, these systems of domination, be it, you know, uh, white supremacy or patriarchy or human supremacy, these imaginings um, that are completely diluted, we can't expect to use these architectures and have different health outcomes. We have to restructure those architectures in order to have 
better health outcomes. And that is deep work. That is not simply like a DEI training or let's get the men to think a little bit more about how not to be negligent of their female patients. Same thing with black babies surviving more with black doctors in the neonatal and the perinatal um, era, um, time period. Another way of saying that is non-black doctors are negligent of black babies or that anti-black racism is so baked into the structures of medicine and the people that they actually can't be the kinds of healers that they need to be to serve the communities. Um, and that's an indictment of the entire you know, system of not just medicine, but the architecture of our society. Um, and so if we, you know, I noticed how with this Omicron wave with COVID, there's just a lack of discussion of, I don't see any of the health disparity data out there the way it was in 2020. You know, it's like we all realize, oh, okay, this is killing black and brown and indigenous people. Let's move on. Let's take away the masks. We're all fine. Let's get over this. Now it's endemic. But but I feel like what COVID has exposed for us is the um, underlying cruelty of 600 years of misunderstanding our relationships to each other and our responsibilities to one another. Yeah, and, and not merely misunderstanding, I think, but also, you know, capitalism understands who to put to work. I mean, you know, to to, to wrestle, you know, down with, with the question around, well, what is it about capitalism? It, it is about precisely this process of creating categories of things uh, that were once beings and people and whom that then can be put to work. And and it's important, you know, Rupert just, just said it, that, that, you know, medicine doesn't hover above this in some sort of brow mopping and tending way. I mean, it's, it's not like sort of, you know, Columbus arrives and then these, these you know, kindly people in white coats come and, and say, look, we're awfully sorry, like, we're not with him, uh, we'll make you feel better. Uh, medicine is entirely part of the fabric of uh, of, of society. And that's why, you know, one of, one of the, the things that still boggles me uh, while we were writing this was the, you know, for, for, for me to find out that you know, when a, a survey was conducted in 2016, um, in, in the United States, 58% of the general white population think that black skin is thicker than white skin. Now, this isn't true, but it's a myth that uh, is propagated that allows uh, white folk to think that black folk don't feel pain in the way that white folk do. And 40 and 40 percent of first year white medical students. But and and even after four years of medical training, 20 <laughs> percent of the white medical students still believed that black skin was thicker than white skin. You know, these, these are the people who are ready to, to actually minister to people of color and ready to be sort of unleashed on uh, the general population. And they're they're still harboring these racist views because as Rupert said, medicine isn't separate from society. It is part of the art. You know, it's always been part of the process of colonialism. It's, you know, sort of, uh, if, if you think that guns, germs and steel uh, sort of exhausts the, the theory of colonialism, you need to listen to the dig more. Uh, but you also need to understand that medics were always part of the arsenal that, you know, that, that constituted colonial, uh, you know, colonial assault in, the, in, in this continent. Alongside that distinction between self and other, there are a bunch of other binaries. At work too. You write, quote, the psychic technology crucial to justifying the expansion of empire was the invention of the diametrically opposed concepts of society and nature. Humans who were capable of allegedly rational thought, usually white, Christian, landowning men, comprised society. The rest of the planet, non-Europeans, women, animals, rivers, and plants, were defined as nature purely physical things without minds. How does this distinction drawn between Europeans and non-Europeans relate to the one drawn between nature and society? And then how do both relate to this 
other important binary, this dualistic account of the human individual, the the separation of mind and matter. What's up with all these binaries? (laughs) I mean, those are the battle lines upon which power is stretched. I mean, it's just, I guess that's how we understood and how we understand it to become possible to do this kind of violence. You have to twist your mind. Your mind has to be conditioned to sever your care for one another, to sever your care for the living world around you. And that, um, you know, severance, the breaking of those relationships is a part of the damage that we look at in the book and how we understand, you know, when we talk about inflammation as the body's response to damage um, societally and and on a planetary level, on an ecosystems level, it's the same thing. And those are the kinds of damages that have been wrought through the enforcement of these kinds of architectures of domination throughout the world. And so what is most interesting to me is to think about what happens when we repair those things. So what happens, you know, if the damage wrought by colonial capitalism um, creates this inflammation in the body and the planet and our ecosystems, what happens when we reassert other ways of being and knowing? Um, What happens when we decolonize our medicine? What happens when we decolonize our food system? What happens when we insist upon um, food as and the seeds that bring us our food as relatives as opposed to things that we can sell and 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 move um, the way that human bodies were sold and moved in times of slavery and continue to be sold and moved in modern slavery and so that that is really the work of liberation is to reintegrate these things that have been severed to heal the fractures of um, Enlightenment era intellectual abuses um, and to understand that, you know, there's much more to be gained in healing and repairing these relationships and insisting upon economies of care and cultures that uplift our responsibilities to one another and to the earth than than the current system that we're living in. And we're seeing, you know, COVID has really drawn all of this into such sharp focus. And right now, you know, these, um, you know, the lifting of the mask mandates, these things aren't, these recommendations are not coming from Black folks, Indigenous folks, Latino folks, the people who've suffered the heaviest brunt of COVID are not out there shouting for mask mandates to be lifted. It's the people who represent the elite. Um, It's not the people who are the essential workers who have been forced into exposure and forced into illness. And so that once we understand that we must repair these um, things that have been fractured, we can get to work with creating a much better, a much better world. And that's what Raj and I look at as this concept of deep medicine, not letting ourselves um, just be lulled by, you know, by the benefits of what modern medicine has to offer. And and we're not there to throw away all of Western science and all of modern medicine. We're going to take the good and throw and understand the, the legacies of power and the dynamics of power that led us to what we know and led us to where we are so that we can do it better. But it is hard to do, isn't it? I mean, you know, because the, the Enlightenment's cleavages and divisions and hierarchies sit uh, in our language and in our minds and squat there uh, uninvited, but considerative of who we are. And and uh, I mean, I think that, that you know, the, the, the ideas of 
you know, nature and society, for example, are ones that, uh, you know, we, we were drawing here on, on some of the work that uh, Jason Moore and I did in the history of the world in Seven Cheap Things. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his work in uh, thinking about the, the web of life. But it's important to understand that, that uh, what passes for timeless enlightenment thought uh, often uh, is developed in response to crises of capitalism. You know, we, you've got Descartes uh, sort of spinning his wares uh, in moments where intellectually it's quite useful to have ideas about you know, beings with souls and beings without them, uh, beings that, that are free and uh, th- those that can be usefully thought of as automata, uh, precisely at the moment when there's quite a lot of these new beings coming uh, profitably, profitably into sight for, for his sponsors. Uh, and it's also important to understand that, you know, sort of the boundaries of what it is that constitutes uh, nature and what it is that constitutes society are a battle line and particularly a battle line for those whose bodies are put to work. Uh, you know, I mean, while all history is the history of class struggle, it's important to understand that the, the boundaries here of who it is that gets counted as uh, nature or society um, have always been contested and fought. Uh, and you know, we're still in that process. And this is not just about sort of rights of indigenous people who in the United States were only given the vote in what, in 1924. Um, but uh, where you still, ha- you know, we're, we're having lively debates around the, the, the rights of nature. Uh, we're certainly having debates still about the status of indigenous people uh, around the world uh, and the, the, the status of indigenous knowledge and the theft of that knowledge uh, and the theft of the beings that have been tended through that knowledge and through that care. So, you know, the, the the idea of these binaries, if nothing else, just a useful explanatory way of understanding where the fault lines are, as Rupert was saying, right? These are the battle lines where colonial capitalism seeks to enforce certain kinds of regulatory authority to be able to say, well, we can do whatever we like to this river. We can do whatever we like to these people. We can do whatever we like to this set of knowledge because it's in the public domain because we've decided what's public and what isn't. So, you know, I think that's the, you know, the reason we where we find it useful to draw on, for example, this sort of nature uh, society binary or to think about Cartesianism it is not because we believe it, uh, but because it actually ends up being quite useful if you're interested in uh, recognizing both the way in which it has constructed us in this conversation now, but also how it is that we might find pathways of, for liberation through the struggle of working communities out of this kind of uh, this sort of the sort of impasse by drawing on the, the hidden uh, histories in which the voices of communities of people of color historically have been silenced, and you can understand now why because they were considered natural, not uh, social beings. But then also understand uh, why it is still so hard for a white supremacist uh, capitalist society to, to hear those voices. You write, "quote Indigenous people have known for thousands of years what modern science is just beginning to understand." that good health is all about relationships and living with others in harmony. Instead of domination, of germs, of people, of life, good health is about hospitality, reciprocity, and care. By disturbing our traditional relationships with the land and with one another, colonialism has disturbed our internal ecologies as well. You're, you're certainly not arguing that indigenous people, simply by virtue of identity or race or ethnicity, have some sort of inherent special knowledge what what is it then that that materially grounds indigenous forms of knowledge being such systematic forms of knowledge yes it's not some sort of special sauce that you know or some sort of uplifting of a romantic notion of indigenous people it's understanding their systems of thinking um some of the the systems of thinking that actually 
are universal with all in people who are living close to the earth in a way that is intact with their um, cultures. So there's an uninterrupted cultural um, cosmology and understanding, a way of situating the self in a context of an entire system and understanding how selves operate um, to uphold the health of an entire system. That doesn't mean that there are not indigenous groups that have, you know, patriarchy and these, um, you know, other toxic systems of domination. But in general, um, there is a greater amount of um, tending of relationships and um, reciprocity um, such that the outcomes are that forests tended to by indigenous groups who are living culturally intact are more biodiverse than forests that are tended by private or public entities. Um, that the gut microbiota of um, indigenous people and also horticultural societies, horticultural societies that have, again, um, a different orientation around how we understand the self and other are um, these, the gut microbiota are also more biodiverse. And we're seeing that greater biodiversity, a robustness in the microbiota of humans in the gut and on the skin actually protect people against diseases that are very common in modern industrialized societies where those you know, where a different cosmology is is um, operating. And so it is the cosmology that we really look at. What is a cosmology that requires that we care for one another, that doesn't treat the, the microbes in our environment as invaders and, you know, terrible things, but understands how um, they're also involved in helping us in, and in, in, in tuning our immune system to being less inflamed. Um, it is understanding how we relate to the other beings around us. For example, here in California, the decimation of the beaver population completely damaged the hydrological cycles in California. And the places now where there have been beaver reintroduction um, have are, are more resilient in the face of fire. They don't burn the same way because these master hydrological engineers know something that we don't know, and they do it better than we do. They manage, um, you know, wet wetlands and ecosystems in ways that not only create greater biodiversity, but rivers with beavers in them have nine times the amount of water in them. Um, so they are the drivers of an ecological system that we don't even understand. We don't, we don't have, we can't do what they do. We're not better than they are. Um, and so that's the kind of under, you know, that situating humans back into a place of humility in the circle of life, as opposed to, you know, the masters of everything around them, um, which is a very, you know, Christian European concept that, oh, we are the, we can just go master everything. So that, that's you know, that humility and that um, ability to learn from all the different beings around us how to be in proper relationship. That's just a different way of being. Um, and so, yes, it's not, you know, when you look at um, indigenous groups around what is now, you know, occupied Turtle Island or the United States and Canada, so many people's knowledge systems have been purposefully suppressed and destroyed through colonialism. Um, that there's this process of people reawakening and and re trying to remember and reattach themselves to those interrupted lineages, and that work is so critical um, because it is um, bringing into focus other ways of being 
that are superior or better for human health, ecosystem health, and um, the web of life. And so it couldn't be happening at a better moment. It's happening right when we need it to happen. And it is really all of our duties, those of us who live in those places, to uplift, support, protect, and um, do what is necessary to follow the lead of the indigenous people doing this work. I feel it is critical for the future of human survival on planet Earth um, because there are ways of knowing that are better than the ones that we're living with. That is literally destroying the systems that we require to be healthy. And that, that cosmological revivalism and reconstruction is is really important. You see it in other places. For for folk who don't know, the, the international peasant movement, La Via Campesina, uh, this is a, a movement of now over, what, 200 million uh, farmers, farm workers, landless laborers. And it's very interesting when you go to uh, a Via Campesina meeting, often the meeting will begin with something called a mystica, right? So a, a sort of mystic ceremony that uh, when indigenous people see it, they will laugh. It's entirely confected. And Via Campesina knows that. And yet it doesn't stop it being very moving and very grounding and very spiritually necessary for the participants there. Uh, it's a certain kind of revivalism. Um, it is not authentic. It doesn't claim to be. It doesn't claim to be part of any particular cosmology. Um, it is part of a, a one that is rein being reinvented for the 21st century. And I think that, that that's quite interesting because uh, there is then no sort of pure insider perspective where some authentic keeper of the flame of Via Campesina's cosmology can tell everyone to fuck off or can in some way just assume an insider perspective that is beyond critique. And I think that's very important because often when when we do see these romantic notions of indigenous community, uh, it must be, oh, yes, we must bow down and uh, they're always right. And yes, we, 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 let's gloss over the, the moments where indigenous communities participated in slavery or in genocide or in whatever it is, uh, because it's possible and necessary to engage in those critiques with our comrades and to observe, yes, there is patriarchy and yes, that shit needs to be called out. And yes, the, a, a class uh, structure can and does obtain in certain indigenous communities and that needs to be called out too. But what's interesting about the, the, the revival is precisely that it's open to these moments of critique, that it is possible to imagine and reconstruct a cosmology in which human supremacy is not okay, uh, and in which uh, the, the various kinds of dominations that come through colonial capitalism are observed and named and split away. Uh, so that, I mean, you know, th this is all to say, you may not like romantic ideas of indigeneity, but neither do indigenous people. Um, uh, and those who are fighting for uh, actually a transformative kind of uh, approach to something like the red, black and green New Deal, for instance, are precisely looking at uh, moments of intersection, of, uh, of exchange, of the, the sort of interface, uh, the, the sort of boundaries the, uh, where the ecotones of uh, different forms of political life uh, come, to, come together and, and sort of cross-fertilize. You write, quote, central to the story of how human well-being is regulated in nature is the chemical language of hormones. Even though we're at the early stages of understanding the human web of life boundary, we are a little further along in understanding how human bodies create hormones that react to being in harmony with their surroundings and in relationships. And you point to the Japanese practice of forest bathing as one traditional practice of being in nature that has real health benefits. What what does harmony mean here? Why why do we biologically benefit from being in the natural world? And what what role do hormones play in that interaction? 
Oh, so many. Um, so it can be as, you know, detailed as microbes in the soil um, get inhaled through our noses and go up and create changes in our brains that are similar to what you would get if you took Prozac, right? So that they're having, you know, and I wouldn't recommend it as a pharmaceutical, here's something you can just sniff, um, but actually get yourself into the forest because there's all these ways um, that we don't yet understand that actually drive down cortisol. They drive down adrenaline. They um, help our blood pressure go lower. They, um, and, and it's the, it's a beautiful symphony of things, not just, you know, one microbe. Um, but it's a symphony of sounds and, um, and feelings and experiences and smells that our body just tunes to. And so that's the, and, and so going back to the exposome, right? If we are living with the vibrancy of forests in our daily lives, of a healthy, vibrant, biodiverse forest, we will have a different kind of um, internal milieu in our bodies um, because, the, um, because that's how our immune systems evolved. Um, and so that's, that's critical to think about when you know, so many forests are still being felled and um, you know, we know the critical role that they're playing in regulating the temperatures of the earth and, and how we cycle you know, different, different molecules that are necessary for our survival to be in the right balance. Um, but yeah, it is a, it is a, you know, one of the things we do in the book is we start with the immune system and the endocrine system, which is where the hormones are and the nervous system. Then by the end, we are querying anatomy that actually even these concepts are part of that false division of the, the way the self has been dissected and that these things are actually all very much a soup of interrelated webs of interactions within the body, um, that those that, that even those concepts fail to describe the complexity of what's happening within our bodies. Um, that we as individuals rely so much on all the microbes that live inside us and with us that it throws the concept of who we are into question. If I would be, you know, just so sick and underdeveloped in my brain without all of these passengers who offer me their medicines on a daily on a daily basis to tweak what hormones go on and off within my body to turn genes on and off as I was developing as a fetus all of that was happening by things that would be called the other so who am i if my being is so re requires all these other entities to keep me well and that's where the boundaries of the self the borders of the self start to dissolve and we start to understand ourselves as a, as a component in this greater web of being. And so that's, you know, when we start the book very, you know, literal and macrophages and cytokines, and then we end in this place of really challenging our very notions of who we are. It was a, it was a very powerful journey for me to take and to think about then when I'm at the bedside with my patients. But there, there is... Uh, you know, in, in in the left, a sort of tendency then that would say, well, all right, Rupert, uh, what we're going to do, uh, I, I hear that, that there's a chemical in the forest that can, uh, you know, that can function like Prozac. Um, and so, you know, we, with our sort of fully lu uh, automated luxury communism tucked under our arms, what we're going to go, we're going to go into the forest, we're going to find that chemical, uh, and then we're going to bottle it for the working class, and then they can go huff it uh, while they work in a factory. 
uh, or while they have robots bring them things uh, while they you know they live in cities far away from uh, from, from these forests that we're, we're going to continue to dominate with a certain kind of approach to being supreme over nature that is kind of built into a certain model uh, that understands that well you know our, our food can come from genetically modified crops and we can just have monocultures and robots and that's the way in which we're going to provide our food in the 21st century and I, I think that that you know the sort of forest huffing tendencies of the left um, need to be smacked upside the head here uh, not least because you know I mean the, the, the that idea of humility uh, in in the face of nature is you know, uh, uh, missing from certain uh, elements of the left, I think, when it comes to thinking particularly about food systems and ecology. And it troubles me a great deal that that there's such a confluence between the left and the right, you know, the the sort of crazy uh, mechanical left uh, and right on issues like, you know, uh, synthetic meat or, you know, using, I mean, this was a story that we sort of predicted where, you know, uh, we were talking about the microbiome a second ago. It's the case that uh, when you live in cities, particularly in the global north, you are, your, your microbiome is much less diverse. And there is an association between a lack of biodiversity inside your microbiome, inside your gut, and a range of inflammatory diseases. Uh, and so, uh, so something that appeared in the New York Times just as we were, uh, just as the book came out, was an idea that what we need to do is rewild our microbiome uh, by stealing the uh, the poop of indigenous people, uh, particularly Yanomami communities uh, in southern Venezuela and northern Brazil, uh, who have such a rich engagement with the world around them that they are, uh, you know, that their inflammatory markers are far lower. They live with diseases that normally cause blindness. Uh, you know, for example, chlamydia is endemic, but uh, asymptomatic. Uh, and that's uh, it's hypothesized in large part because of the biodiversity with which they live around them and within them. Uh, and there is a, a way of operationalizing and stealing, once again, uh, indigenous knowledge uh, in this in this particular moment, encapsulated in poop. And what you would do is swallow the pill of uh, indigenous shit, uh, and all of a sudden your microbiome would be rewilded uh, in a fully automated and luxurious way. Uh, and I think that, that that's... You know, it, I, I just want to sort of flag here that what we're saying about, you know, the, the, the sort of symphony is not the harmonious, you know, all is harmonious uh, and, uh, you know, uh, under some sort of authoritarian rule over the forest, but rather the symphony is precisely uh, a, a sort of a, a metabolic dance that is in large part unknown uh, to any kind of Western science, uh, but is being destroyed by uh, the advance of, you know, capitalism nonetheless. Uh, and it's not clear that the way you solve that is by bottling the forest or bottling the poop of indigenous people and carrying on as if it's okay to continually dominate nature. And yes, and that I love that, Raj, and the and that we understand that the microbiome is not something that can just be encapsulated and popped, but is a reflection of a system of relationships. And that's where, you know, the the problem of like a left liberal perspective versus a more transformative understanding that in order to get that healthy, robust microbiota in our own selves, we have to transform the world around us and the ways in which we relate to the ecosystems that we live in, the bioregions that we are a part of, you know, the society that we belong, that we are living in. So we see that all these things denude the gut microbiota from, you know, stress around carrying debt to, again, racist police violence to living in a food desert where all you have exposure to is foods with dietary chemicals or pesticide residues. And that's, you know, most urban people in the United States. 
And so how do we um, create a, a healthier, uh, a, an environment that can allow for a beautiful, rich, biodiverse forest inside of us? Um, and that's where, you know, the, the power of the microbiome science is, is it's showing us what we need to do. It's showing us that we need to rewild our relationships, not just the gut. Yeah, you write, quote, our understanding of inflammatory bowel diseases is in its infancy, not least because we are just starting to realize the consequences of Walt Whitman's truth that humans contain multitudes, which is ironic because people of Whitman's era learned about the gut in ways that are still taught to this day as a singular, almost mechanical entity. What, what is the conventional medical understanding of how the gut operates and where inflammatory bowel diseases come from and what does a more this more this more ecological look that you're talking about reveal you know we're taught that in medical school that the gastrointestinal tract is basically a tube that starts at your mouth and ends at your anus and you put food in the top and it goes down increasingly smaller levels through the process of digestion it's gone from like crumbs into a slurry into um, you know the constituent molecules that then get absorbed by the intestines um, which sort of act like a sieve and everything that you don't want at the end or that your body doesn't need is just sort of pooped out and that's that's the end of it right but what we know an inflammatory bowel disease is when there's inflammation somewhere along that tube and i remember when i was a young attending at ucsf i was on a ward where we had a lot of inflammatory bowel patients and i was like wow a lot of these people are either coming from the central valley which has been blasted with unbelievable amounts of uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides or they're coming from you know communities where they're eating like the crappiest food, um, just really highly processed foods um, with no relationship to ancestral grains or fibers or um, any of that. And so I, I remember asking one of the doctors at that time, the gastroenterologist, I'm like, you know, is is there any relationship to how we're farming and what's happening with these folks who are coming in from the Central Valley with these bleeding guts, you know, in their 20s, they need to go to they need to go to surgery right away. Oh, no, this has nothing to do with diet. This has nothing to do with farming. This has nothing to do. And, and sadly, gastroenterology as a practice isn't as far as where the science is in my, the microbiome, right? The microbiome science is much further along and has not been clinically applied um, to the degree that it could or should be. Um, but now we're understanding that when you know, children are given lots of rounds of antibiotics, they're more likely to develop Crohn's disease uh, because you're denuding the gut microbiota at a critical time in its um, development of that child's immune system. We're learning that um, some Crohn's disease can be re, um, can go into remission in childhood if you give those children exposure to healthy gut micro, like a fecal transplant. Um, so there are these um, where you take the feces of someone with a biodiverse, healthy gut microbiome and you transplant it into a person who's got a, a damaged or, or um, unhappy um, gut microbiome. And so uh, we are still learning about these things. What we are seeing is that inflammatory bowel disease is showing us kind of this this edge effect of the like the gut is where the body forms an ecotone with the world around us. It's this, it's this environment inside our bodies where what we are exposed to become, goes, has a chance to interact with the very intimate layers of our body. 
and forms a transition zone. And when that transition zone is mediated through a rich forest of microbes, um, we have a, you know, a better time at sorting out toxins from non-toxins, at you know, being pickier and chooserier about what goes inside um, our bodies. And so I think that microbiome science is forcing gastroenterologists to become ecologists, and all of us actually in medicine, to start thinking more about systems of ecology that are um, necessary for proper functioning of the human body in a way that doesn't predispose us to these debilitating chronic inflammatory diseases. Yeah, there's also what's called a gut-brain microbia axis, something that I discovered quite to my own surprise, a few years ago when I tried taking an SSRI for depression and it gave me nasty stomach problems. And so we have this colloquialism that we feel something in our gut. And it never it never occurred to me that that's actually like true. It turns out that our feelings really are, in fact, in significant part located in our guts. How, how does that work? Man, these microbes are so magical. Um, so like yeah. some of them can give us, you know, um, feelings of well-being, what you're talking about. Like that's what serotonin does in our brains. It gives us a sense of well-being. The gut-brain uh, microbiota axis is an incredible example of how our antiquated notions of the body is like dissected in these systems it really makes no sense. Um, if microbes in your gut are can can trigger feelings, thoughts, um, experiences of wellness, it really behooves us to start thinking about how we can tend to those creatures inside of us in order to have better um, health for ourselves. But yes, I've been very interested in learning more about what that relationship is and then how it actually relates to things like our farming practices. Um, if we are denuding the world around us um, outside of our bodies, what consequence does that have inside of our bodies? Yeah, Raj, how does this loss of biodiversity in nature parallel or even directly relate to the loss of this biodiversity in our bodies? It's very directly related, as Rupert's saying, with, with the, uh, the, the spread of two kinds of technology obviously the the idea of monoculture uh, of large expanses of land uh, in which a single crop is grown connected uh, to futures markets and then to uh, networks of logistics then to ultra processing and then to uh, uh, individual consumers uh, the, the rise of that that kind of farming technology uh, you know is attended also with the rise of certain kinds of industrial chemical agriculture. So you know, what you're getting when you get your monocultures, uh, you, you know, uh, your, your hyperproductive monocultures, uh, and we'll dig into exactly what that means in a second, uh, and your the, the chemical arsenal that comes along with it, you're losing uh, a great deal of knowledge, uh, not just the indigenous knowledge that was uh, bound to the land uh, and then uh, evicted so that uh, industrial farming can happen. Uh, but then also, you know, just knowledge uh, that, that happens, uh, that, that's cultivated uh, through biodiversity. Um, so rather, you know, when you start 
uh, farming for the market, uh, you lose uh, a, a diversity of crops when you're farming for a commodities market. Commodities markets uh, suggest, in fact, demand uh, uniformity. So what you're growing in Kazakhstan has to be the same as what you're, you know, you're growing in Iowa, which has to be in turn what you're growing in Russia. Because if you're engaging in the futures trade, then you need to be able to know that, that the kind of wheat that you're buying uh, is essentially uh, interchangeable uh, across different zones and across different um, uh, sort of agrobiodiversity areas. So uh, the advent of a certain kind of capitalist agriculture means uh, that you're compelled as a farmer to farm certain kinds of things, whether or not you, you know, you, you apply uh, the, the sort of uh, the, the arsenal of industrial agriculture and pesticides in particular uh, on, onto that land. But as a farmer, in general, you are compelled to uh, use this arsenal because, again, when you set farmers in different parts of the world against one another, that benefits no one except the buyer. The, the buyer is the controller of the, um, you know, the, 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 these would be the sort of the four grain trading companies, um, uh, Archer Daniels, Midland, Midland, Bungie, Cargill, Dreyfus, the ABCD of um, international uh, commodity supply chains. Uh, and obviously, the, the, there, there are others depending on which bit of the food system you're looking at. Uh, but that uniformity is compelled, you'll see through the story, through the logic of financial markets and through what it is that's of optimum service to, to, to these buyers. When, when the prices go down and down and down, farmers find themselves caught up in cycles of debt, uh, and one of the ways in which uh, you can uh, get out of that debt is by growing yet more crop. Uh, and one of the ways you get out of growing, uh, you, you grow more crop is to apply more fertilizer and you know to, to reduce the pest load and to reduce the weed load. And so all of a sudden, uh, you find yourself on a treadmill, the pesticide treadmill, where in order to get the same yield as you got last year, you have to buy a little bit more uh, of, of your pesticides and fertilizers. And these pesticides and fertilizers become less and less effective over time. And so you have to invent new ones uh, uh, generationally as weeds become uh, used to these crops or as pests uh, adapt to them. Now, the, the, the upshot of all this is that globally you have a, a vast uh, swelling of the, the use of pesticides and you have a dramatic reduction in the, the diversity of crops that are grown. Uh, and all of this really through the, I mean, you can, you can imagine this happening just through the invention of a futures market. But layer on top of that, geopolitics. Uh, and in particular, the idea of the green revolution. Uh, it's important for folk to understand that the green in the green revolution uh, doesn't refer to the color of the leaves. It's a, it's a political color. The, the idea of the green revolution is a Cold War invention that was, uh, uh, you know, the, the term was coined by the head of USAID, a man called William Goud, who was head of the United States Agency for International Development in 1968, when he said, look, these things, referring to subsidies, pesticides, you know, certain kind of policing of land reform, uh, and of uh, you know, certain kinds of uh, hybrid crops, these things uh, are not like the Red Revolution of the Soviets, nor like the White Revolution of the Shah of Iran. I call these things the Green Revolution. And the idea of the Green Revolution is that here's a bundle of, of technologies of uh, policing certain kinds of farm size, uh, policing women's fertility, uh, policing the ideas of you know what you know how you can abuse the hydrological cycle, how you can get free electricity to pump water of, you know deep from underground uh, onto your land. All of these are a package that allows certain kinds of status quo to prevail. And the status quo in this particular case uh, that, that the US was, was keen on uh, was cheap food for workers in urban areas. 
So, uh, you know, this is a sort of long answer to the question, Daniel, but but the idea here is that these, uh, the vectors that provide for less biodiversity on the land and vastly amounts, uh, vastly increased amounts of pesticides uh, in our water supply and in our bodies are part of a a long process of capitalist transformation uh, accelerated by uh, the United States and by a a range of foundations uh, and continuing to to be accelerated through the 21st century, where we we now find the Gates Foundation in the, you know, in the position of being one of the sort of lead donors towards developing agriculture in uh, the global south. uh, And they're promoting precisely this kind of pesticide-heavy, uh, genetically modified crop-heavy uh, agriculture. Uh, and of course, it's being bankrolled uh, by uh, Bill Gates's assets. Uh, it turns out that Bill Gates is also not only, through his foundation, the, the very spear tip of certain kinds of industrial agriculture in the Global South, Bill Gates himself owns the largest amount of farmland in uh, the United States. Um, it's you know, He owns this farmland because Farmland is like gold with yield, uh, to use uh, the, the term that Madeleine Fairbairn invented, uh, because you know it, it's a it's a place to park your billionaire assets. But it's a place where you have a farmer on the land who is borrowing money, per, you know, perpetually to be able to pay the rent, uh, and in so doing is using precisely these pesticides and uh, and fertilizers and monocultures in order to be able to uh, to make sure that the Bill Gates uh, isn't out of pocket. And this has all sorts of enormous ecological, social political consequences all over the place. One notable example that you pointed to is farmers in the Punjab forced to burn their crops because of water use patterns unleashed by the Green Revolution, leading to Delhi having some of the worst pollution on earth. I mean, it's, uh, that, that story was one that boggles the imagination, right? So, so India is the success stories of the Green Revolution, if you look at it in a certain way. And the, the way you have to look at it, and you, you'll find this way of looking at it everywhere from the sort of pages of the New Yorker to, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream media. Uh, but you know, the idea is here that, that India was able over a couple of years to double uh, its wheat production. Uh, and... At the same time, there was this wholesale adoption of Green Revolution technologies. Uh, So certain kinds of seeds developed and funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, And uh, this kind of wheat production spread pretty rapidly through the late 1960s and early 1970s. Now, if you peel away the story quite a lot of that adoption had nothing to do with the seeds themselves and quite a lot to do with the fact that there were subsidies for farmers uh, and farmers were being paid a way, you know, way more for their wheat than they were in the early 1960s. So, you know, part of the, the sort of miracle of the Green Revolution has nothing to do with seeds, but everything to do with subsidies and uh, in particular uh, subsidies for not only the crop, but also to be able to get free access to water, to boreholes. Now, fast forward, uh, you know, a few decades, the land uh, that Punjabi farmers had been farming is now really desiccated. It's, uh, it, it's, it's much saltier because of the continual irrigation through this groundwater. Uh, the application of pesticides hasn't done uh, a great deal for the, the quality of the soil. Uh, and you're starting to see epidemic levels of farmer suicides and of uh, drug abuse and uh, rural despair. I mean, in in some ways, it echoes the kinds of tragedy that are unfolding in the heartland in the United States. And then the Modi Modi government in recent months or or years has tried to cut supports to 
Punjabi farmers, which has prompted that mass protest movement. Right. But, and even before that, there were un- certain untouchable subsidies. So, for example, the subsidy of uh, free electricity to be able to pump water is, is not something that the Modi administration could go anywhere near. And so they're looking to, to sort of do to, to figure out, well, all right, how do we how do we fix this? Partly they fix it by having cheap coal concessions by digging you know, uh, and, and by evicting uh, indigenous communities who happen to find themselves on top of rich seams of coal. Uh, partly they do this by restricting when it is that planting can happen uh, and by making planting later in the season, inserting certain kinds of regulation uh, to uh, limit the amount of water pumping that can happen. They try to reduce the, the sort of load from irrigation. But what that means is that then when farmers have to clear their rice crops to plant winter wheat, uh, instead of having a, you know, a, a longer period of time, farmers have just a couple of weeks to get rid of the old crop, old crop and put a new one in. And so the quickest way farmers get rid of that stubble is by burning it. And so by having a, a fix for the water crisis, they've created this pollution crisis. And this is why around Diwali, around November every year in Delhi, uh, You'll, you know, the 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 skies are uh, absolutely, uh, you know, sort of clouded. Uh, in part because it's Diwali and there are fireworks going off. In part because it's the season where the forest burn happens and where the winds bring down uh, the the pollution from Punjab into Delhi. And you know, th- so this is the sort of long result of the Green Revolution and farmers having a certain kind of political muscle that they've been able to uh, to flex. And particularly, it's been very interesting to see how they flexed it through the Modi attempts uh, not to end water subsidies or to end electricity subsidies, but to end uh, the kinds of support that farmers had been used to uh, and to to expose them to the free markets like farmers in the United States have now been uh, taught to to, to live with. Another place where you draw the connection between the destruction of the larger ecology and crises in human health through mass monoculture, agriculture, and its effect both in terms of biodiversity and nature and also in terms of it forming the productive backbone of this industrial food system that's harming and killing us is you point to the island of Okinawa, occupied by Japan, and then after World War II, also occupied by the U.S. military. What what was Okinawa's food system like prior to colonization? And how has colonization, this kind of double colonization, changed that food system to the detriment of Okinawan health? Okinawa was uh, what food scholars uh, observed as a blue zone, and epidemiologists understand it as a blue zone, an area where loads of people live to 100 years old. But because of the dual colonization, both by Japan and then by uh, particularly the United States after the Second World War, uh, you've seen a precipitous decline in life expectancy to the extent where you have grandparents burying their grandchildren. Uh, so pa- grandparents who had been knowledgeable about uh, and able to exercise, uh, 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 participate in a farming system uh, that was rich in crops that are you know, teeming with antioxidants and the, the, uh, where the food system itself involves uh, sociality and involves uh, sort of mutual aid and mu- uh, involves engagement with one another to be able to support a community that will uh, occasionally fish, that will occasionally farm, that will occasionally uh, forage uh, and that will, will eat together and you know, divide labor in a way that, that allows everyone to, to first meet, uh, but then exchange and thrive on a very diverse range of crops. Uh, all of that was 
slapped down first by sort of Japanese occupation and the disciplining in certain kinds of ways of eating from from mainland Japan, but then by the United States, who built uh, the Funtenma um, Air Force Base on the most productive and fertile land uh, on Okinawa. And so, you know, what, what was really the, an important bit of agricultural land is now a very, very large runway. And so you know, while there is, you know, certain kinds of farming that happens actually on the American base, you know, people have cut through the wire and, um, uh, you know, it's possible to actually see some farms on, on the occupied land of the American base where people are still sort of holding certain kinds of traditions, certain kinds of crops there. The, you know, the, the disciplining uh, into the standard American diet, SAD, as it's known uh, in the epidemiological literature, uh, which is rich in carbohydrates and uh, highly refined uh, foods and milk being imposed on a country that is filled with people who are lactose intolerant. Uh, those kinds of disciplining uh, processes through you know, of, of, of occupation and the transformations of diet uh, have resulted in uh, you know a, a shock to the system uh, of, uh, of of, of you know, Okinawan bodies. Uh, and so, yes, uh, Okinawa is now no longer the prefecture in Japan with the longest lived people. And it was quite uh, you know, quite the source of some uh, consternation in Okinawa when uh, it, it lost its sort of first place ranking. But there are folk in Okinawa who have a solution. And their their solution is decolonization. Look, the only way that we're going to get back up to being, you know, to having uh, loads of centenarians on this land is to decolonize it. Uh, and I, I think it's very important to understand that, uh, you know, while we're being prescribed through our sort of dietary books, you know, with titles like The Blue Zone, uh, that what you need to do is eat like an Okinawan. It's no, there's no point being able to, you know, prescribing an Okinawan diet if there is no Okinawa left where the, those dietary practices can thrive. Uh, if what you're doing is just saying, well, what we need is red sweet potato without taking the culture that, uh, in which that potato is sacred alongside loads of other things, then we're doing the same thing again, right? It's like stealing indigenous poop or huffing the forest. Uh, it is attenuating these relationships that, in, in which food is understood as a medicine and which is understood as part of the fabric of uh, of you know the sort of social symphony uh, without ever understanding that you know it, the, the the food is a symptom of a broader range of social relations rather than the thing that you can just take out and pretend that everything else should be fine that that really goes leads to um, this misunderstanding that I'm seeing in the food as medicine discussion and healthcare right now where you can give prescriptions for food where we're seeing you know well you have this disease here's this red bell pepper for that disease and this cauliflower for this disease without understanding again that it is these systems of relationships to how the food is grown um, the relationship to land the relationship to the people who are creating the food um, and and then the eating of that food in in community and in in relationship to one another. And so that requires, you know, when 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 we talk about food as medicine within the deep medicine circle in our work, it's it's about the transformative praxis of rearranging our world and relationships so that we can actually benefit from all the medicines which come from the relationships, not just simply from the molecules and micronutrients that are in a, a strawberry. And so it's, um, and that's part of what, you know, Raj and I are doing in this book when we're talking about deep medicine, when he talked about Bosai and the locus of pathology being in an organ, understanding that the locus of medicine is actually in the structures around the bodies, um, that, that that's where we need to be acting there. And the outcome of health will come when those systems have been arranged in a way where they are harmonizing well together. 
um, and, and that health will actually be impossible to um, obtain on any wide scale with these little tweaks that we're seeing offered to us. Um, and so it's exciting to me that, you know, that this, this understanding is, is moving and spreading, not just in the work of food and medicine, but throughout our world as we're watching the climate disasters. It's, it's becoming increasingly difficult to ignore the, the dynamics that are happening around us, which makes it a ripe time for really pushing transformative work. And, and it's good to see that happening. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online but they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. It's not just industrial food we're consuming. We're consuming air pollution. We're consuming human-made chemicals, of which there may be more than 144,000 of. And we're also consuming microplastics. You write, quote, People consume up to 52,000 microplastic particles a year. If you add what we are breathing, that brings the total to 121,000 particles a year. Even the unborn are exposed. If the genetic code for the enzymes digesting plastic ends up in the human microbiome through bacterial gene swapping, our microbes will digest them, and those byproducts will create more inflammation and more cancer. The adaptability of gut microbes was helpful when early humans had to follow different food sources or move away from unwelcoming climates. But in a world where industrial contamination is now ubiquitous, this adaptability has become a liability. Gut microbes harmonize our bodies with the ecology around us. When our surrounding exposures are harmful, that results in inflammation. What happens to our bodies when the world around us is flooded with things like microplastics? And how is it that our bodies evolved over such long periods of time to adapt to the world around us and, as a result, are today mimicking the toxic industrial environment that now surrounds us. What we're seeing with 
the example you just brought up of microbial gene swapping. Um, so microbes are very promiscuous. They like to share their genetic material. And even in the microbiome data right now, when we're looking at the different organisms that are present, it's not about necessarily the species that's present um, that, that can dictate how our bodies are responding. It's about their metabolic activity. And that metabolic activity is really determined by the genes that they carry. And microbes in the environment can end up in the human and, and stabilize in the human gut microbiota. And one example of this is the gene that digests seaweed and makes it available for humans to absorb the nutrients of seaweed is not found in everybody's gut microbiota, but it is in Japanese um, culture where seaweed is such a staple of um, the foods that they eat. That that organism, there was an organism in the marine environment that um, swapped genes with an organism that is stabilized in the human gut microbiota and then conferred an advantage to people who lived in that environment so that they could mobilize the nutrients from seaweed that they ate. So this is a very concerning um, because there are genes that do metabolize plastics and the uh, byproducts of that metabolism, that microbial metabolism, are chemicals that can cause cancer. Um, so one of the questions I had as I was thinking about, you know, being in the hospital with increasingly young every year, younger and younger people coming in with the most aggressive forms of colon cancer I've ever seen and dying from them, people in their 30s now. Um, it's shocking to see these young, otherwise healthy people coming in with these just really wicked, um, aggressive tumors um, starting in the, in the colon. And now the recommendation for screening has dropped from 50 to 45 because this is, you know, this is a thing. <laughs> this is happening. It made me wonder, you know, are there organisms in the gut that are digesting these microplastics and creating these toxins just locally? We know that cancer develops at the site of chronic inflammation in the gut um, all throughout the body. Um, chronic inflammation itself is a driver. It is a pro-carcinogenic driver. It creates a, a microscopic milieu in the body that drives the formation of cancerous cells or cells that escape um, uh, the cycle control. It's another example of how in order to have health, we have to stop poisoning our world um, because our bodies and the organisms that are part of our bodies, um, we call ourselves assemblages of organisms or holobionts, that, these, um, that so many aspects of our being are directly up against what's in our world around us. So if that is something that can be digested into poison in our bodies, that is what we will get. And so that's where like the cautionary principle is really critical that, you know, before we start unleashing all of these chemicals into our world um, for industry's sake, that we stop and we um, really understand the downstream consequences um, in our bodies and in the whole ecosystem around us. Um, there are other ways of building um, materials. Um, so material science is um, has been historically for the thousands of years of human history. It hasn't been one that's destroyed <laughs> the earth. But over the last 600 years, um, there's been a rapid acceleration to materials that are highly destructive and, and toxic for the human body. And we look at this in the book, in the introduction, one of my patients, Shelia McCarley, who I will never forget. They're just patients that will stay with you for the rest of your life. And I was so grateful that her family gave me permission to name her and talk about her story because she really, really shaped um, my understanding of what it is we're describing in this book. 
Shelia was um, born and raised in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where she grew up drinking water from the Tennessee River Valley watershed, one of the most polluted watersheds in the United States. When she was young, there was a chlorine factory that would have about 150,000 pounds of mercury went missing every year. About 10 years ago or 15 years ago now, it was decommissioned. But she grew up, you know, drawing catfish out of that river and eating it. She drank water from a well that, you know, went down into that that groundwater supply. And I think 3M has a factory on that watershed as well um, with their forever PFAS chemicals in, in the water. And so by the time she was 40 in Alabama, her hair started falling out. She had a rash on her face. Her joints were swelling. She was falling down. She went to the doctor there and they said, oh, you have lupus because that's what it looked like, you know, falling, you know, woman in her 40s. And they sent her out with a diagnosis of lupus. They gave her some steroids that tamped down inflammation and sent her on her way. She shows up in California in the Central Valley where she moved. And these, um, you know, these manifestations got worse. Of course, because she was carrying a, a diagnosis of lupus, no one thought to you know, check it again. So they just kept plying her with steroids and, and, and um, things that would affect lupus. Then she ended up in the ICU for five months um, and, and then on my service for the last two weeks of her life. Um, and by that time, she was in her 60s. You know, I was taking care of her. We would give her antibiotics because it looked like she was septic with a bacterial infection. Um, her blood pressure was dropping. She was like just very inflamed. Her fever would go up. We would give antibiotics. We'd put her on pressors. We would do cultures. We never found a bacteria um, that was uh, impacting her. She'd get better. She'd get out of the ICU. We'd stop the antibiotics. She'd get worse. She'd go back into the ICU. And this went back and forth for um, months. Every doctor at UCSF um, saw her. I, I don't know a single person who didn't know her. Every esoteric diagnosis was entertained. We didn't find out what was driving the inflammation of this person. But we did know her IL-6, um, which is a marker of inflammation, one of the inflammatory cytokines, was through the roof. So I sat with her one day after I'd seen all my patients because she had this like big, like very, she was a little overweight and she had this Southern drawl. And I was like, let me, let me learn more about, you know, who this person is. Cause I didn't, I didn't get the full history. And then into the room walked her son who had white supremacist tattoos around his eyes. He flew in from Alabama, tall, gaunt young man. And he, they sat down together and I just went, oh my God, okay, let's hear the story of where this person's from. And out came this story of pollution, uh, water pollution, industrial pollution. And the son had um, diabetes. Actually, at one point in this day, he was in the ICU bed next to his mom with diabetic ketoacidosis. And listening to them talk about, you know, how people were dying in their communities, this poor white community in Alabama in their 40s and 50s. And they were told they had cancer, but no one really knew what was going on. And and so just sitting and listening for a good hour to their story just really, it really resonated with me. I stepped outside and her son followed me and just fell into my arms sobbing and said, no one has ever bothered to ask us what our lives are like. And that to me was a moment of understanding a kind of healing that's needed now, a kind of solidarity that's needed that, you know, the earth has been poisoned. The working class people the poor people, the disenfranchised people around the world are being harmed in ways that are just horrific. Shelia asked to die. She was she was tired of going back and forth and she died quickly after we, you know, withdrew what she wanted us to stop doing. And 
And then I found out as, as I was trying to get permission for telling her story from her son that he died too shortly thereafter. This is an, um, an emergency and it's not being treated as an emergency, the toxic poisoning of our world. And then you have, you know, politicians and political systems that try to divide us from one another when we really need to start building systems of solidarity to take down this engine that is making health impossible for so many beings on this planet. One thing that's making things so impossible for so many human beings on this planet is the stress load of modern capitalist, colonial or post-colonial society. And you write that, quote, Evidence is accumulating that trauma and PTSD impact the immune system and are strongly associated with inflammatory diseases. Trauma is an element in the exposome that tunes the immune system to sound out the full range of systemic inflammation. What sort of stress does trauma cause? We think of stress as, oh, I'm, I'm stressed out, but stress is actually something that impacts your body and your mind, and your body, of course, as we've touched on, is part of your mind. What sort of stress does trauma cause, and how does that stress shorten people's lives? And then lastly, how have capitalism and colonialism differentially distributed that stress burden across lines of domination? So trauma is probably the most damaging, I think, part to the exposome in that it, it is transmitted intergenerationally. Um, its traces are felt through generations. Unhealed, uncomposted trauma can wreak complete havoc on the inflammatory system, on the immune system, in ways that make chronic inflammatory disease unavoidable. Um, so um, this is why the collective grieving, composting, and healing from trauma is a critical part of what Raj and I describe as deep medicine, that we have to understand how communities are being traumatized. You can look at sort of a continuing of stress and trauma, um, but um, you know whether it's stress from not being able to pay your mortgage, um, the fear of being evicted from your home, the fear of becoming unhoused, the fear um, and stress of not being able to pay your student debt, um, right now or for forever, we're setting people up for a lifetime of chronic illness through stress. And the way in which that works is through setting off damage signals in the body. And with trauma and PTSD, those damage signals keep coming. Um, the brain and the body keeps alerting um, this, this, these damage signals. So you get the engines of inflammation trying to heal that damage, but it keeps coming. Right. And so I was surprised to learn, you know, when I have a patient who comes in with um, a heart attack to the hospital, we ask, you know, oh, are you a smoker? Do you have a family history of heart disease? Do you have hypertension? Do you have diabetes? Do you have high cholesterol? And you ask the traditional risk factors. I was surprised to learn in our research that up to 40% of people with heart attacks have no traditional risk factors. So what is it driving those heart attacks? And I looked at one of my colleagues, Heather Certain, that we wrote about 
who is a hospitalist, which is one of the, uh, I guess on the hierarchy of doctors in the hospital, we are like on the bottom of, of that, you know, of that <laughs> rank. Um, but the stress and moral distress of being a hospitalist, of being a cog in a totally toxic, dehumanizing medical system where people are being denied care, where people are being forced um, out into the streets when they're chronically ill and unhoused. It, it forces us to sever our care again from each other um, through our work. Um, and so Heather, who was, you know, a runner, a healthy person with no cardiovascular risk disease, but with plenty of student debt from becoming a doctor and all the stress and burnout or moral distress from being a physician in a capitalist system, um, had a heart attack. And so this is um, creating real-time active damage and, and payday loans are probably, you know, one of the, another like incredibly striking example uh, you know, we're probably, I was just thinking about that the the, the story of Sheila uh, and her son, um, and, and about the organising around it. Because I'm I'm just working on a, a project at the moment around uh, the Rainbow Coalition uh, that involved basically white supremacists for Jesse Jackson. Uh, and it's, uh, it's it's interesting going through some of the footage around that uh, and and some of the the sort of testimonies uh, that it, you know there, there are these stories of white folk falling into the arms of black folk and crying. Uh, and you know, this, this may, I mean, that image has been so polluted by Donald Trump saying, oh, a grown man came crying to me and he was just crying and he was crying and he's grown man, big man. Uh, there is an actual moment of recognition that in, in which class becomes very important and in which, uh, you know, we, we talk at the beginning of this book about how, uh, you know, your planet, your, uh, your community and your body is inflamed. And this idea of sort of community inflammation being stoked by um, the, the sort of narratives of white supremacy and the, the, the narratives of, uh, of identity politics rather than of uh, you know, deeper understandings of where it is that we, we find these solidarities, I think is really important just to reemphasize and to understand how it is that organizing uh, really sort of layers into that. And, and that's why this, you know, the, the story of payday loans is so important because you know, this gets down to your question about, well, how does colonial capitalism distribute this, uh, you know, distribute trauma d uh, differentially? Well, remember, let's go back to the beginning, uh, thinking about what inflammation is. Inflammation is, you know, your body's uh, learned, you know, your, your, your body's response to damage or the threat of damage. And that's why, you know, we, we've spoken so much about storytelling, because it is only through storytelling, through culture, through understandings of being able to interpret the world that we understand what a threat is. You know, if I say, look, a man from the government comes and knocks on your door, um, that could either be, you know, the mail carriers delivering happy birthday wishes, uh, or it could be the sheriff uh, kicking you out of your place. And depending on what, you know, where you find yourself in relationship to that story, where you see yourself and how you are narrated by the sheriff in turn, how this sort of dialectics of storytelling works, you know, the, the your, your response to this description of, you know, man knocks at your door is going to be rather different. Uh, and, you, you know, the idea of threat and of stories and of understanding consequences you know, really matters when we start thinking about uh, the conditions of particularly working class Americans uh, and around payday loans. You know, for, for uh, listeners who may not know, I mean, you know, a, a payday loan is where you have a loan of uh, $300, you end up paying, repaying 800. And, you know, the APR is what, 600%. And so the, the, the reason you would do that um, is because you are worried about being able to uh, make rent and be able to buy food and be able to afford insulin uh, and be able to put gas in the car so you can commute to your to your job. 
The US working class uh, is particularly exposed to the cash crunch at the end of the month, you know, and, and everything about the, the working conditions here is sort of structured that way, even sort of snap entitlements run out halfway through the month. And so uh, you need a payday loan in order to be able to just make it to the end. Uh, but those payday loans are so stressful that if we, if we were to ban them, uh, according to one estimate, then the suicide mortality rate would drop by 2.1% and fatal drug poisoning rates would drop by 8.9% in the United States. So you know, here's a way for folk who are interested in, in understanding the sort of oppressions of capitalism to be able to trace through uh, inflammation actual real policy changes that are required in order to, to just give the working class a little bit of breathing room. Now, of course, this isn't the answer is not merely to sort of carry on as we are and get rid of payday loans and everything's going to be fine. But it, this is just to observe that you know, the distribution of uh, the, the kinds of stress that we were talking about, Dan, are not innocent. Uh, they they find themselves particularly heaped on uh, on the working class, and then, of course, within the working class communities of people of color, uh, uh, and you know, in the United States, Black Americans in particular are uh, deprived of the kinds of resources that are required in order to be able to make it through to the end of the month. Uh, so, again, you know, the, the history of capitalism uh, is one that that leaves its residues in the, the sort of contours of inequality and the, the, the repetitions and the perpetuations of those inequalities uh, structurally in, uh, th through the US. But it's just super interesting that through the elimination of just this one thing, you can imagine reduced levels of suicidality and, and, uh, and fatal drug overdoses. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable that just one of many, many, many awful facets of our status quo order causes so much death. But more, more broadly, these harmful stress responses, they're rooted in the way our stress responses were conditioned to develop over the vast majority of human history, well before the arrival of capitalism and colonialism. Stress responses that then misfire under present conditions, conditions that we did not, of course, evolve to live under. You write, quote, over the course of human evolution, the nature of our stressors has greatly changed. Instead of the acute stress of a bear running after us, we are more exposed to chronic stressors, such as making house payments so we don't end up on the street or going for a jog while black in a racist society. So yeah, eliminating payday loans or student debt would indeed save lives. But more fundamentally, what you're arguing is that we need a much more systematic and radical transformation so that we're not getting so systematically stressed by the everything about contemporary capitalist everything. society. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to close by discussing how oppression and domination shape medicine and the healthcare system. You you noted early this incredible statistic about how many white medical students believe that black skin is thicker than white skin, which of course is not true. And so it's a medical system that's quite obviously in so many different ways racist towards patients. But then that system is reproduced within the hierarchy of the hospital itself with doctors and administrators at the top of the hierarchy more likely to be white, those doing low-wage service work at the bottom of the hierarchy more likely to be black or Latino. What are the health and treatment impacts of medical racism? And why is diversification representation not enough to fix the problem? Though I imagine it's one part of the solution to the problem. It is a part because we do see that concordance between patients and, and uh, care providers does impact health outcomes. Uh, 
So when you have people who are coming from communities who end up in positions to serve um, through healthcare, you do see different health outcomes like women going through surgery, having female surgeons do much better. During this last surge, Omicron, our hospital cafeteria stayed open. In spite of the data we, of us knowing that the spreading of the virus in closed areas where food was being served, i.e. restaurants, um, that had the highest concentration of virus in any like indoor place that was sampled. In spite of knowing that even on airplanes where there's very good ventilation, people will, were still spreading Omicron when they took off their masks to eat or drink. And the people who are working right at the edge of the dining room are the cafeteria workers, the low-wage cafeteria workers who are mostly brown and black. When those folks, I'd go and, you know, check out and get my food and um, go sit in my little cubby where I can take off my mask safely um, because I'm a doctor and I have access to these rooms. These folks are um, forced to breathe the air of all the 60 people who come and sit down and take off their masks for lunch. And when they went to speak up to their supervisors, they were reprimanded. Um, and so the critical importance of unions um, to organize low-wage workers, especially within the hospital, um, is super important. But we see the same fault lines of COVID happening within the healthcare system as we do outside the healthcare system. So the people in transport, the orderlies, the cafeteria workers, the people bringing in the trays, the janitors, um, having greater exposure, people who are black and brown, um, who don't get the fancy N95 masks right away, who don't get the face shield or the training on how the virus is spreading. Um, so we see that within the architecture of a, a colonial hospital. But medical racism is, is such a deeply important issue because it impacts care in, in every single way. Um, so that, you know, people, when I was doing medical response at Standing Rock, I was called out there by California Native people and then really brought in by the Lakota, Dakota grannies. Young people who were injured by the police um, and by the hired mercenaries who were assaulting the indigenous people standing against the D Dakota Access Pipeline going through their sacred water. Those young people who we were advising to go to the hospital, the nearby area hospital, refused to go because of how racist the hospital is. And so their experience of racism was so, so profound. The history of forced sterilizations, the history of how medicine has abused and used Black and Indigenous bodies um, as a part of expanding ways of knowing, as a part of human experimentation, as a part of all these horrific unethical things and practices that have happened. It has, you know, it, it made these young people just unwilling to go. And they said, I'd rather, you know, sit here and die with you guys than be there and treated in that way, um, which really speaks to the um, failure of our profession to actually advance health equity, which everyone's saying now we want to advance health equity. No, we don't. Um, we want to talk about advancing health equity because it makes us look like racists if we don't say anything. Um, but if we really wanted to advance health equity, we would be restructuring the entire hierarchy of medicine and um, starting from the people who are the transport and the cafeteria workers within the system, asking them how this should be organized, how we should be working to serve the communities we're so terrible at serving, how we should be 
mobilizing our white coat privilege, our resources to demand the eminent domain of 40,000 empty houses in San Francisco to house the 8,000 unhoused people in the streets. Um, so that, you know, that we start getting involved in the structures that are causing poor health outcomes for our community members outside the hospital and inside the hospital. And so that goes well beyond, you know, the DEI trainings that were, <laughs> were offered. And it, and it really necessitates a political education from the very beginning. Um, and that means, you know, when your child starts reading, you start giving them the proper <laughs> reading material. But it also means bringing children and young learners into um, community dynamics where they can see how power is um, organizing, how collective power works, how um, we make decisions that don't um, marginalize and, and otherize people. One interesting ha thing happened recently at UCSF where I work where um, these two teachers of health and in the individual and health of the society were giving a lecture on Zoom. And for years, this has been criticized by the medical students as not really talking about how to change the structural determinants of health. So now we're all talking about the structural determinants of health. Let's look at how our society is structured that leads to these poor health outcomes. And usually it's, again, um, discussed along, you know, these individual choices, like what people have access to in terms of eating, what choices they make in terms of whether or not they smoke or don't smoke. Maybe we'll include something about housing insecurity or do they have an access to the car? And it's very like light in terms of looking at, you know, how, how structures are causing poor health. What we don't talk about in medicine is how those structures came to be and then how we can actually dismantle and rebuild those structures. And um, what that does is when we don't talk about the radical perspective, the transformative perspective, is that students start to think that these things are somehow inevitable. And that is the great lie of capitalism, right? And so when Black students come into a medical education framework and hear the structural determinants of health and how their people are essentially fucked um, because of all the structures of colonial capitalism. And then that was the end of that lecture. Now we're moving on without giving any discourse to um, any space for uh, discourse around the people who are actually working to transform those uh, structures, the, where those structures came from, what part of those structures are rapidly and immediately changeable, what part of those structures are going to require more organization and um, tactics to change. So without a radical um, or transformative analysis, those students are feeling condemned to that this is the way things are, and they will always be this way. And so what the Black medical students did this year is hijack a Zoom call and start lecturing the lecturers for two hours um, about how their way of presenting this material was violent to them. And it is violent. Um, and it was part of their indoctrination into the ways of medicine. And they pushed back. And now they're actually organizing, um, several of the medical students are organizing their own political education series um, outside of the school where they just go to community members and ask for their knowledge and teachings. And they listen. And that's part of what we are so bad at in medicine is that as we create these hierarchies of power and we are working in these matrices, doctors, you know, don't listen. They don't listen to community. They don't listen to patients. They don't assume that patients are actually the experts in their body or their lived experience. Um, and so these medical students are demanding a decolonizing structure.
to how they're being educated, which is really beautiful to to witness and to be a part of. Um, and so, yes, medical racism is real. Medical racism is horrific. Um, it has, you know, when people are going somewhere with the vulnerability of their bodies to be helped, to know that they're going to be injured in the exact same ways that they're injured outside um, in the world around them. It's just a terrible um, reality. It's, it's one of the greatest injustices that we have to um, all be involved in changing. Um, and so that's a lot of the work I do with the Do No Harm Coalition um, and also just in um, the practices that we do collectively as a group of uh, uh, health workers who are working to decolonize medicine. Look, I, I'm, I'm a long-term, long-time listener to the dig, first-time caller, and I'm, I'm uh, excited about uh, just, just following up on what Rupa's saying by just sort of situating this in the longer history of, of what we call deep medicine. I, I, I remember, uh, Dan, you were having a lovely conversation with uh, Gabe Winant about the next shift. It was a, a, a wonderful conversation, but you did say that there's plenty of good things that are happening in hospitals, uh, and that just reminded me of uh, a line that we quoted from Franz Fanon in. In inflamed, where here's Franz Fanon, one of the sort of the, the, the greatest theorists and practitioners of the arts of decolonization, uh, where you know he he does his best to try and decolonize uh, the psychiatric hospital that he finds himself in in Algiers, but he observed that quote behind the doctor who heals the wounds of humanity appears the man, a member of a dominant society and enjoying in Algeria the benefit of an incomparably higher standard of living than that of his metropolitan colleague. Moreover. In centers of colonization, the doctor is nearly always a landowner as well, end quote. Uh, and that line, I mean, that, 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 that goes to why it is that Fanon walked away from the hospital, that the capitalist hospital may not be the place of healing that we thought it might be. And this is not to uh, wish an end to hospitals. It's just a to wish an end to capitalist ones, um, you know, in just the same way as we, we might wish an end to the capitalist university. There's nothing wrong with universities, the University of the Poor, the University of Abbas Ali Basim Dondolo. There are so many universities that are driven by uh, and the, the designs and desires of working class people. But the capitalist hospital may be, I think, something to consign to the scrap heap of history. Uh, and that's what deep medicine means, I think, to us. You, bo- you write, quote, to be clear, We are supporters of peer-reviewed science, and we reference it widely throughout this book. Our concern is that the modern medical industry patches up bodies broken by the same system through which medicine itself was produced. What, What you've identified, I think, is a contradiction. How do you reconcile that modern medicine does produce so many useful forms of knowledge, treatments, cures, while being so deeply rooted in ways of seeing and appropriating the world that produce so much of the harm that that needs to be treated and cured. It's kind of a structuring tension of your book, I guess. I think it was Sitting Bull who said, you take, you take the good and you leave the bad, basically. You know, you take what's good, what works for your people, and you leave the bad. And there are many parts of what we call now modern Western medicine that were actually stolen from indigenous traditions and um, people um, looking at the slave medicine that was practiced in the U.S., looking at the amounts of knowledge that came through black and indigenous cultures um, and now have been subsumed under Western medicine. 
and also recognizing the power of scientific inquiry that has definitely, you know, evolved through Western practices. I don't think that all of that is bad or all of that is good, that we must learn to um, weave a better basket by bringing together different knowledges and different systems into um what can become healing practice and also expanding that outside of the limits of the walls of the hospital into the world around us to understand why people are getting sick and starting to act upon those systems. So it, it is a tension that we have to, you know, and actually I think no better place to look at it than the COVID vaccine, right? As this has come up many times in my conversations with indigenous people and groups and, you know, black liberation folks around, do we get vaccinated? Do we not get vaccinated? Is it capitulating to the man to get vaccinated? You know, the refusal of the vaccine from someone who's indigenous and black is very different than the refusal of a white anti-vaxxer in Marin. But there's some of the, um, there is some, there are some areas of overlap in terms of the perspectives and understandings of the self versus community and the ways in which we hold and care for one another. And so, these are tensions, these are contradictions, these are not very, you know, neatly presented, but that, that is the active, that is the active site of this revolution of thought. Um, and it should be, it should be something that we have to wrestle and contend with. And um, I don't think there are any easy answers here. But I do think that moving away from practices of domination into ones of co- communion with one another is, is a good guiding principle. And that ten- those tensions and contradictions exist within the history of Western modern medicine as well. You tell this fascinating story, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but of one of the founders of modern immunology, this German 48er who really did see disease as caused by, so often by social and economic inequality. Verschau, our hero. Yes, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know I would come to love a German man so so. So deeply, <laughs> but yes, Rudolf Virchow. Cool. Other than Karl Marx, <laughs> but yeah, so Virchow was a you know an amazing um, person who understood that diseases are really driven by the the structures around the body, and we took his ideas and ran with them, and really um, applied all the science that we could you know braid together to show the wisdom of what he was saying back 150 years ago. And Virchow yeah, had clearly read Engels' uh, work, and you know, it was Virchow who, who said, medicine is a social science and politics is nothing but medicine on a grand scale. Um, but again, to, to, uh, that, that ought to be the, the way in which we think about the, the sort of recuperation of certain kinds of science, right? Uh, that you know, the, the guide in terms of vaccination uh, ought to be around duties of care to one another. Um, and the ideas of the, the merits of good science are about peer review. Um, you know, what makes good peer review is uh, having as many peers as possible around the table. I mean, you know, the, the history of Western science, as we say in, you know, the, the story about smallpox, I, mean, I, was, I was on a call where you know, someone from The Economist was saying, look, Western science is terrific. It's always given us things like smallpox, uh, and whereas uh, smallpox, the smallpox vaccine, um, when, whereas in fact, you know, that vaccine was in circulation you know, decades before Jenner was credited with discovering it. And he wasn't. I mean, you know, the, 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 that knowledge passed through uh, the Middle East uh, and through women's knowledge networks before, long before Jenner ever got to it. But it, it took a white man to sign off on it uh, in order for it to become credibly uh, replicable. 
But the idea of you know, what we like about science is peer review. The history of science has been the denial of status for so many peers uh, in the process of that review uh, that, you know, that, that now there's certain kinds of knowledge that could that can be understood as being appropriable, uh, as opposed to uh, understood correctly as acts of theft from indigenous people. So the way to uh, recuperate the scientific method is not uh, to uh, to throw it out, but to recognize that it is so imbricated in capitalism that uh, the objects of the ends of knowledge are always um, profit-driven uh, under sort of capitalist research. But it doesn't have to be that way. That it is possible for you know for for certain folks' knowledge uh, to be understood as science correctly, uh, and for the the community of peer reviewers to be far wider, uh, and um, for for the community of peer review to be to, to be far more decentralized than we have at the moment. Now, this isn't to say everyone just jump on YouTube uh, or Facebook and find your favorite conspiracy theory and let's call that research. Uh, there are- Do your own research. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, th- 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 there are disciplines of uh, of uh, understanding rigor, uh, but, that do- you know, but, but that characterizes the history of- um, of, of peer review through you know through, through decades of indigenous you know, centuries of indigenous science as well. Um, so I, I don't think that we're you know that, that we're saying you know weapons free and just you know find your find your favorite theory on Reddit. This is much more a way of saying uh, that in fact look to indigenous history and science and look to a range of you know subaltern science to find pa- parallels and templates for what what this is uh, what it is that this might look like. Well, Raj Patel and Rupa Maria, thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Dr. Rupa Maria is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she teaches and practices internal medicine. She is a co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, a collective of health workers committed to addressing disease through structural change. Raj Patel is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin's Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs and the author of Stuffed and Starved, The Value of Nothing, and a co-author with Jason Moore of A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that large landed property reduces the agricultural population to an ever-decreasing minimum and confronts it with an ever-growing industrial population crammed together in large towns. In this way, it produces conditions that provoke an irreparable rift in the interdependent process of the social metabolism, a metabolism prescribed by the natural laws of life itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews and ratings introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling other people about the podcast. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.